Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Father, I thank you for the life that we have. I thank you for these friends. Father, I pray just for each of us today. Father, I pray that if there is one here who does not know you, does not trust your love, has not received your grace, Father, today might be the day that their eyes would be open, that they would learn to lean the full weight of their life upon you, and that you are good. And Father, I pray for those who are coming in here beat up this week, Father, would you lift their, would you lift their gaze? Father, for those whose sin is weighing them down, would you ease their burden with your grace? Father, for those who are out of work, Father, would you convince them of your love and your care and your protection? Father, for those in financial difficulties, convince them of your provision. For those who are sick, Father, would you heal them and be with them in their, um, while they wait? Father, for those that are in the hospital today and recovering from surgery and those who, um, whose life feels dark, Father, for those who are just bearing burdens of life. Father, would you, would you lift them up? Father, for those who are in joy and celebration today, uh, Father, would you just fan that flame and let them enjoy your grace and your goodness as a gift from you? Father, for each of us, would you teach us to trust you even, even more than we already do? Father, in the deep places of our lives and our souls, would you crack open those doors and dark to dark spaces and just breathe, bring light and life there, yes. even this morning. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in Psalm 59 today, and uh, that may seem weird because we've been walking through 1 Samuel, but uh, trust that in just a little bit you'll understand why we are going there. But And several of us were away this weekend on a men's retreat, and we had a great time. We uh, laughed a lot. Um, we dug into the word. Oh, we got some pictures here. How about that? Um, this is the non-winning team, I think. Uh, then I think there's another. We played some human foosball. Uh, several of the guys were kind of limping around today because uh, we've got some older dudes and some rapidly becoming older dudes uh, in this group. And uh, we played some human foosball and beat each other up quite a bit and had some fun. And uh, But we had a good time getting to know each other. We also had a good time diving in the word and just connecting um, with the Lord and, and worshiping together, um, sometimes weeping together, sometimes just talking about life, praying for one another, bearing, coming up under the burdens of life and uh, bearing one another's weight. And so it was just a good, good time. Yeah. Um, really hope that that's the start of something for us and hope that that's something we do regularly. And so hope that, uh, that you guys will, that couldn't make it this year will jump in with us next year. Um, and we're really looking forward to that. It was a good, good time for us. Uh, we also talked about, kind of continued our study of the life of David this weekend, though, on the men's retreat. And one of the things we talked about is just the weightiness of life. I came in with a backpack the first session and just wore it for a good part of that session, just saying, man, do you know what the weight of life feels like? Because we all can relate to that. We all know, and there is just a burden to the responsibilities that we all bear in life and that we all carry. And 
I think for, for us, the reality is that although that the burdens are mostly external responsibilities, a lot of where we wrestle with that is on the inside, isn't it? Like we wrestle with the responsibilities that are all going on in here, but man, it does stuff to us in here as we kind of are trying to figure out how to process that and what to do. And so we use this image actually of an iceberg uh, and you've probably seen this before. I know I've, I've pointed to this before, but this image of an iceberg, you know, there's only about 10% of an iceberg that's above the surface and about 90% of the weight of that iceberg is actually under the surface of the water. And, and there's a great illustration there for our lives that so much of what we do and what we talk about and what we express and what we communicate about happens out here. But so much of what we feel and where we wrestle and the the kind of values and pulls and tugs of our lives happen under the surface, don't they? And so we, we talked about that this weekend at our men's retreat and just, uh, just kind of mined that idea a little bit and kind of looked at what does it mean to get under the surface. And here's the good news is God's not unaware of that. I mean, just God made you, so he kind of knows what you're about. He knows that, that you've got this kind of physical being, you've got the social uh, being, you've got spiritual, you've got emotional, you've got, uh, you've got intellectual parts, and these components of your life all work together to make you a whole being. It's what it means to be a human being. And God works in all of those areas and wants to transform all of those areas, and all those areas need the light of truth brought to so that we learn to live those in light of who God is and what he wants for us. Back to Augustine, I mentioned this on, over the weekend, but Augustine in 8400 in his book, one of my favorites called Confessions, asked a great question. He said, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Like if, if, you, if you're distant from yourself, how can you take yourself and make yourself near to God? And he, he followed that up with a prayer um, in, in his book. He said, grant Lord that I may know myself so that I may then know you. Lord, help me to understand what's going on here so that I know how to bring this into the, into the light of who you are and into relationship with you. And I think that's an important thing. What is he really getting at? He's acknowledging that, that we can't bring our stuff to the Lord if we're not even aware of what's going on underneath the surface of our own lives. And so it's worth spending a little bit of time there. Friends, there's, I hate to break it to you, but there's, there is no life this side of heaven without struggle tension, responsibility, temptation, all these things that make life kind of messy. And, and that's always gonna be the case. We're never, you can't ever just take the backpack of those things off. We live in that world and it does, don't have to, those don't have to crush us, but we've gotta learn how to navigate the waters with that. So one of the things I said this weekend is that self-leadership is often the most difficult kind of leadership. You know, we can read all kinds of leadership books and leadership principles and leadership ideals and all these different things. But the reality for us is, man, leading myself is, is the most difficult task of leadership that I have. And the same is true for you. So here's the question I want us to wrestle with. A couple of questions I want us to ask today is, how do you care for your own soul in the craziness of life? And how do you care for your soul in the midst of the messiness and the craziness of life? How do you process your experience in a healthy way? How, are you convinced that God cares about the stuff that you're going through? And all these questions, I think, are important questions for us to, to think about and to wrestle with, and we're gonna look at some of those today. And here's what, uh, why we're going here today is, out of all the characters in the Bible, Davis, David, uh, of all the characters in the Bible, David gives us this kind of unique ability to look at kind of the, the 
uh, just all the different, kind of how we process all the different experiences of life. And that's because we have this huge chunk of narrative of David's life history. And you kind of see his personal story unfolding through First and Second Samuel. But then you can also jump over to the book of Psalms and you have this, this incredible um, kind of songs and poems that David wrote where he's kind of looking back at all the things that happened and saying, man, how do I make spiritual sense of all the stuff that's going on in my life? And so you get this juxtaposition of this experience that's kind of like, man, here's all the, here's all the crazy stuff that happened. And then you get this other stuff of here's him trying to make sense of it and understand it. And so that's why this, uh, I think it's important to look at the life of David here. And if you feel like me, you just realize that life hits nonstop and it just keeps moving, doesn't it? And the longer I live, the more I realize how important it is to live with an honest awareness of what's going on, not just out there, but in here. Because so much of the trouble we get ourselves in is when we just keep running and running and running on the surface, but we're unaware and not dealing with the stuff that's here. That's why guys get up down the road and they say things like, how did I get here? because they never stopped along the way to ask any questions about where they were going and uh, the road they were traveling and the fuel they were feeding the, their life. In fact, one of the reasons when we started this church, one of the things we wanted to be about was authenticity. And it's for this exact reason, that we realize that it's so easy to run through life, especially in a Bible book culture, and kind of put on the happy face, you know, put on the, 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 the kind of two dots and the smile with a wrap perfectly round circle and wear that into church and say, you know, hi, how are you? Fine, thank you. How are you? And, and just repeat that, but never to stop and just go time out. What's going on? Like what's, what's happening to your soul? And so we want to we be a place where you can do that. And, and it's important for me, but it's important for us because you can't have a deep experience of a relationship with God without honesty about the reality of your life. And you see that over and over through kind of beginning to end of the scriptures. That's really the way we're made. Can I tell you about some of the conversations I had this week? One guy said to me this week, he said, I know that God loves me, but I only trust it about half the time. And you ever felt that? Like, I know up here, God loves me, but whenever I get through life, only about half the time do I really feel that. I really trust it. I really feel like, and I'm counting on that right now. The rest of the time, I'm like, man, I think so but it feels a little bit vague. Another guy said to me, he goes, you know, one verse you, you repeat a lot um, at church is, I believe, help my unbelief, which comes out of the Gospel of Mark. He said, I feel like that a lot. And do you ever feel like that? Like, man, I, I know what this thing is, but I also don't know in some ways, and there's still this kind of messiness in me. Another young gal told me this week that this church has helped her walk through kind of the messiness of some of her family stuff, that she's processed that, but she's realized being here that, that God and, and his church are a safe place to process the stuff of life. And so that's been helpful to do that. Friends, the Bible's nothing if it's not honest about life. It's part of what I love about the scriptures and I love about David's life and I love what we see. And the Bible teaches us that in these moments that we can actually live an integrated life, that we can be a whole being, that, that these things are not separated, but we can actually take our faith and integrate it into the rest of our lives. And the Bible teaches us how to live this way. So let me tell you what we're gonna do today. We're gonna take two passages. We're gonna look at them side by side. We've been walking through the life of David. And in that, we've primarily been going through the book of First Samuel and we've been working through that. And we're gonna look at First Samuel 19 today, but I'm not gonna read through the whole, book, whole chapter of First Samuel 19. Instead, we're gonna actually read through Psalm 59, which here's the thing. The experiences that David, or that are described in David's life in, Psalm, in 1 Samuel 19, 
David actually wrote about those in Psalm 59. And so we're gonna get kind of a real-time emotional reaction to the things that are going on. And David's gonna say, let me tell you how I felt when all those things were happening. And so we're gonna juxtapose those and put them side by side and just kind of mine it and see what we can learn. So I'd encourage you to go back and read 1 Samuel 19, kind of start to finish a little bit later. But today we're just gonna really dig in here and then I'll touch on, touch on some of those things. Now here's, you remember the, the iceberg illustration? If I pull that one back up real quick. Here's what I think we're gonna see today. See that tip of the iceberg above the water? That's the first Samuel 19 stuff of David's life. So that's gonna be all the facts. That's all the things that happen. That's the events, the historical events that happen and how they unfolded. And what we're gonna see is, and there are four times David's running for his life. Four times Saul's trying to get him. Four times that David is in this turmoil of, dude, all this Saul is continuing to pursue me and I can't get away and I can't get away and all, here's what's going on is all this. Psalm 59 is the under the water part where David says, in the midst of those four escapes, those narrow escapes from my life, here's what I felt going on under the surface. So you see how that's gonna work? So that's what we're gonna look at today. So here's what I want you to understand about uh, this psalm. This is a psalm of complaint. And uh, I've got just kind of an outline here. And so I'm going to go like teaching mode for just a minute. So we're going back to school. Put your prof put my professor hat on. I need a tweed jacket or something. But we're going to just walk through this. Here's what happens in this psalm. Uh, he starts off and he asks for help. David's just going to ask for help. Then, then he just kind of unloads. Like he's just going to go on a rant. He's just going to complain. Did you know that biblically it's okay to complain? Like, it, that's pretty normal. Some of you are like, dude, I knew it. I knew that was spiritual when I did it. I'm gonna do more of that. Like, I'm, that's, that may be my spiritual gift. Um, you know, I've got the gift of complaining, but David's gonna complain in three and four. Verse five, he's gonna come back around and ask for help. He's gonna go back and complain. And then he's gonna have this deal where he just expresses this confidence in God in verses eight through 10. And then he's gonna go back and he's gonna ask for some more help. He's gonna complain a little more. And he's gonna come back around and express his confidence for God. So I'm gonna read the Psalm. I'm gonna leave that up there as I read, and I want you just to see if you can follow along and kind of make sense and see the different kind of transitions of what's going on up there as I read. So Psalm 59, let me start. You may have this in your Bible, you may not. At the top of Psalm 59 in my book, in my Bible it says, to the choir master according to, do not destroy, a mictum of David, what? It says, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Okay, so David, this is when David wrote the psalm was during the time when Saul, I mean, yeah, David wrote the psalm when, when Saul sent men and they're literally stalking him outside his house, hunting him down, looking to kill him. And David's in the middle of this turmoil and he stops and goes, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to the Lord in this. He starts to write a song. And so this is what he wrote. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. It's verses one and two, right? What's he doing? He's asking for help. Now he's gonna complain a little bit. For behold, those guys lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and they make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. So here you see in, the, in that three to four, you see this complaint, right? And those guys are out there. They're just, they won't leave me alone. They're hunting me down. They're pursuing me. And so he's just complaining about these guys that are there. And so then he's gonna shift in verse, kind of the end of verse four and five, he's gonna ask for help. Awake, Lord, come meet me and see. Yes, Lord, Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself. 
to punish the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. It's like, God, wake up. Do you see what's happening to me? Your dude, the guy that you anointed, the guy that you promised would be king is in danger. And it feels like you're not doing anything about this right now. Lord, rouse yourself. Wake up and come to my aid. Verse six, it says, each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. Well, there they are bellowing with their mouths. And don't you wonder if he was like literally heard them talking outside the wall? Where he's like, well, there they are again, bellowing like wolves uh, or bellowing with their mouths with swords in their lips for who they think will hear us. Meaning these guys aren't afraid at all. They're so bold. They're just standing outside my door waiting for an opportunity. Lord, do you not see what's happening here? And Verse eight, you get one of two big transitions or pivots that take place in the psalm. And, and, and so you see that, that word, but, that's a transition point. He says, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For God, O God, you are my fortress. My God in, in, in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph upon my enemies. So there's this confidence in God, right? God, this doesn't frighten you at all. You actually just laugh at all your enemies. You hold them in derision and you just kind of mock them. There's nothing you that's afraid. Like I'm trembling because these guys are out there at the door, but I know that you just laugh at, at your enemies. And so there's no fear in you. There's this confidence he has in the Lord. Get to verse, <clears throat> uh, verse 11. Kill them not lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring, down, bring them down. O Lord, our shield, for the sin of their mouths, the word of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies that they utter. Consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more, that they may know that the God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. God, you do something about this so that everyone knows how powerful and strong you are. So that to the ends of the earth, you're famous. To the ends of the earth, everyone worships you. And he goes back and he kind of repeats something he said earlier in verse 14 and 15. Uh, as he kind of goes back to his complaint. Well, there they are again. Every evening they come right back, howling like dogs, prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growls if, if they don't get their fill. And she get this just feel that he just senses like, these guys are like wild dogs that I'm just running away from, but they're just kind of eating anything in sight. And if they get a hold of me, they're gonna eat me too. So he's just complaining about the fact that they're there. And then verse 16, he goes back and there's that, that word again, but, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. And do you see how that works? As you kind of look at that list, do you see how that unfolds as he walks through this? And can you imagine how a guy whose life is literally in danger would want to write something like that? Do you see how that describes him going, this is how I feel right now, Lord. Let me tell you what's happening. He's taking his actual experience and he's translating it and saying, here's the spiritual reality of what's going on. I mean, that's, I think, a helpful thing for us to look at and for us to process and begin to understand what it is that we need to do. And it's interesting that as he comes into this, he sees that God is against his enemies. But he knows that, that the Lord is by my side. The Lord's not going anywhere. Lord, I can stand in your strength and you'll be my refuge. You'll be my fortress. I can hide in your protection in the midst of all the danger and all the stuff that I feel. You remember those two key pivots in the psalm? 
as we look at those back in verse eight and verse 18, that he goes through and he just goes through and he's asking for help and he's complaining about all the problems. And he's just being honest about here's what's going on. And then twice he stops and just goes, but time out, but God, I'm gonna count on you. And that's the, that's the way that he did is he's, he's saying, I need to be honest on one hand about how I feel, but on the other hand, and I need to be confident in who God is and in my faith and what I've been taught. And so he comes back around to that. It's interesting, verse nine and, nine and 10, you see how personal it is. He says, I will watch for you, Lord, and you will meet me. I will watch for you and you will meet me. So what's really in his eyes? Like what can he actually see in the middle of these times? He sees his enemies, right? But in the midst of his enemies, um, his enemies doing all kinds of things to him and trying to take his life, what he puts at the forefront of his eyes, he says, Lord, I'm gonna look for you. In the midst of all the stuff going on in my life, I'm, I will watch for you. And do you find that hard to do sometimes when you're in difficult circumstances? When you're in hard times? Do you have time? Do you find it hard not to just look down at all the stuff and you're trying to rearrange the parts and fix it? And like, if I move some money here and put some over here and do that over, you know, and you're like doing a shell game with your life, looking down here. And what David says in the middle of that, he says, but Lord, I'm gonna watch for you. I'm gonna raise my eyes and look for you. I'm gonna count on you. I'm gonna depend on you. I'm gonna be confident in you. So friends, where do, you, where do you go to strengthen your soul? And you've gotta build it on something stronger than you. And David runs and he says, I'm, I'm gonna build my, build my soul up in truth. And it's a hard lesson to learn. It's, it's one that I find that we, we learn and then we learn and then we learn, right? You have lessons like that, you come around, you're like, Man, I thought I learned that already. Like, I, I thought I learned that last year and I thought I learned it the year before that and the year before that and I guess we're gonna do this again, Lord, right? But I think that's, that's life is constantly bringing those things and trust the Lord and learning to let him mine those things at a little deeper level in your life. So let's go back now and let's look at 1 Samuel 19. Let's look at what he was so worked up about and what was going on in, in the kind of data points of his life that caused him to say all of those things. <clears throat> um, but here's, here's what we as we go back and we look at all those things, what we pull out of this psalm is that there's this kind of great confidence of David that says, says Lord, your strength is gonna be my fortress. Lord, your, your steadfast love is gonna be my refuge. So in the midst of the stuff, I'm looking to you for something to depend on. That's where the truth that I'm gonna find. So we get down to 1 Samuel 19. The very first verse, what you see is, and Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, and he said that they should kill David. Well, that's not vague, right? So Saul has a board meeting. He brings everyone in, brings his son in, brings all his servants in, brings all of his leaders in, and just says, here's the thing we're gonna do. I want you to kill David. So th this is objective number one for the kingdom. I want you to go kill that guy. And so that's the setup of this entire chapter. What happens then is Saul is trying to enlist his son, Jonathan, in this, uh, this execution plan. But you may remember from just a, from a couple weeks ago, what do we see about Jonathan and David? I mean, these guys were close friends. These guys initially, were their, their hearts were in it together. In fact, it said their souls were as one. 
that these were best buds. Like, uh, they, you know, these were guys that they were counting on each other. They actually entered into a covenant commitment where they said, and I will never leave you. I'll never, I'll never give up on you. I'm gonna take care of your offspring. If something, if someone takes you out and I got your, your descendants and everyone after you, our families are like two that have become one. So they're connected. And now Saul's saying, hey, Jonathan, I want you to take him out. So what's Jonathan gonna do? What we see is Jonathan refuses to do that. Jonathan actually goes and tries to reason with his dad. And it's, have you ever been in a place where you know someone that you're close to is making a really bad decision and you wanna go and try to reason with them? Jonathan's a great model of how to do that because he doesn't just look at Saul and go, dad, you're an idiot. Like, dad, David's a hero. He's done nothing but serve you. Like, you're an, you're an imbecile. What are you doing right now? Like, he doesn't do that. He goes in respectfully to him. And he actually tries to reason with him. There's three kind of, in, in his argument that Jonathan makes, he actually takes three different tacks. He takes a moral approach. He says, dad, he says, let not the king sin against his servant David. So dad, this is wrong. Don't sin against him. So there's a moral approach. He also takes just kind of a logical approach. He says, he says to, to King Saul, he says, look, he's never sinned against you. He's never done anything wrong. He's, done, he's been nothing but loyal and faithful to you. And so he's trying this logical argument. He's like, on what grounds are you trying to kill him? Like this guy literally came in and sang to you when you were depressed. He ran out and killed the giant when he was supposed to. He's gone out and made you a ton of money by taking over all these, uh, by conquering all these lands and all these people. He's done nothing but protect you and take care of you from day one. This is illogical. Why would you do this? So he tries a moral argument. He tries a, a logical argument. He tries also a theological argument. He says, why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David without reason? So he's going back to the law of Israel. And he says, this man is innocent. If you take his blood, you're actually guilty. You actually are gonna bear blood guiltiness for yourself. So this is against our faith. Why are you doing that? You know, in, uh, in the New Testament, Ephesians 4.15, it says that we are to speak the truth in love to one another. This is a great example of that. This is a guy who in love goes to his dad and says, and you're gonna make a big mistake here. Let me reason with you. And he, and he gives a moral, a reasonable or logical and a theological argument and just tries to talk him out of this kind of insane plan that he's got. And it seems to work for just a little bit here at the first of 19, his dad goes, you know what, you're right, I shouldn't do that. And he says, go get David and bring him home, I won't do anything. So David comes home and things seem to go okay for just a little bit. Um, but sometimes there's, godly, there, there's sorrow that's ungodly sorrow that you have a sorrow that says, oh, I did what was wrong, but you're not really repentant. And the reason we know he's not really repentant is he's still carrying his spear around his house, right? So like, you're, you, haven't really, you haven't really changed if you're still, still walking around with a spear uh, through the halls of your house. And so David gets sent off to war a little bit. He comes back and you kind of imagine that he comes back a hero again and that sets Saul off and his jealousy and his rage comes back. And so it says he actually hurls the spear at David again. David, I'm thinking this time, because remember in chapter 18, David actually uh, had to dodge the spear twice. So I'm guessing David was a little quick on his feet this time. Like if he was playing there, you know, sitting behind the deal, he's probably like got his back positioned where he wants to be and got his chair pushed out from the table and just going, dude, I got my eye on you, just in case. Like I know you said we're good, but you've hurled the spear twice, you know, like third time I'm gonna be ready to move. So, David, uh, so David's already had to dodge him twice. He dodged him once when Saul wanted to take him out and Jonathan intervened. Now he's dodged him a second time in this chapter where Saul actually hurls a spear at him. And so David has to leave. So where does David go? He goes home. Uh, the problem is, who's he married to? Saul's daughter. So home's not very far from the guy that's trying to kill him still, right? And so what we see in uh, the next section here in 19 is that Saul actually is going to, going to try to 
sends the people to his daughter's house to try to take out his son-in-law. And um, this is a pretty dramatic scene. When you get down to verse, so this is uh, 19 verse 11. So Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. I mean, that's like something right out of Ferris Bueller, right? Like she's literally taken idols, stacked it under the bed, pulled the covers up over this. You know, she's got a computer over here snoring and something going on. And like, you know, she's trying to set up the scene and trying to make it look like David's still there. And she's like, I'm sorry, he's not feeling well this morning. You know, and she knows exactly what's going on. It says, and when the messengers came in, behold, an image was in the bed and the pillow with goat's hair was at its head. Um, Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? So, man, do you feel the tension of that whole scene of what's going on? I mean, dude had to get lowered down by his wife out the window of his house to get away from his father-in-law. Um, this is a tough deal that he's going through. There's a couple things that are interesting in this whole scene. One is, um, why does Michal have idols in their house? Like, she shouldn't have those there. So what she even used to cover it up, she shouldn't have. Those should not be, those really were not allowed, which may be why earlier there's kind of this sense that, uh, that Saul's like, hey, if I let her get married to David, maybe that'll trip him up. And it may be because she worshiped false idols. And Saul's like, man, maybe that'll be the thing that brings him down if I let him marry my, my, my daughter who worships these false gods. But, but you see this other thing of Saul comes in and what is, how does Saul approach her as he comes to her? And do you see the manipulation at work? That's what, he, what it is he says. He says, um, he, he says to her, um, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? You know, it's not, it's not like, hey, where's David. Like there's no personal connection to David. He's just, why'd you let my enemy escape? There's no mention of my son-in-law. Like there's no mention of your husband. You know, so this is the man that she's married that's gonna bear their children and give him grandkids. And all he's saying is, where's my enemy and why'd you let him go? So what she does is she actually lies. And she lies and says, well, David threatened me. So she's so afraid of Saul that maybe he'll turn that anger on her that she actually lies and just says, well, you know, David threatened me, so I had to lie. I had to let him go. Um, do you see what happens in abusive households where there's manipulation that takes place? And there's just cover-up, there's deception, there's just kind of, kind of give and take of, uh, of things that are going on. And that's what you see here. So David fled and he escaped again. It's interesting, the word escape shows up five times in this chapter. Five different times. That becomes kind of the theme of David's life in this whole period of his life is just, I'm the dude that has to escape all the time. Uh, some guys call this kind of David the outlaw. It's kind of the, era, the, the, the season of life where he's the outlaw and he's constantly running. So now he's separated from his kingdom. He's separated from his best friend. He's separated from his wife and his home, from his army, from everything that he's known. He's now isolated and lonely. So where do you go when you're really in a low place like that? Well, he goes to see his old friend, Sam, uh, the old friend, his old friend Samuel, the prophet. 
the prophet that anointed him, he goes and seeks him out. So when he runs away, about an hour from there, he goes through the night, and about, about an hour's walk through the night, he goes and finds the prophet Samuel and knew where he was. And Samuel takes them to this community of prophets. And these community of prophets is uh, they're just constantly worshiping and prophesying and preaching the truth. And there's this kind of communal worship service and community of people that live in these, uh, this area of town where they're all gathered together. <clears throat> and that's where, um, where he runs to, which makes a lot of sense, right? Like he probably wants to go to Samuel and say, dude, help me understand what I'm doing wrong here, right? Like you anointed me king, you told me this stuff was gonna happen. I've been just running from my life since then and I don't understand. You know, so he's probably wanting to go to a mentor, to someone he trusts, to a guy that's a friend, a guy who's outside of all this, a guy that can help him process life. But even in that moment, what happens is really fascinating. It says that as he goes and he's in this community that Saul's, uh, Saul hears about it and he sends his henchmen to go kind of go, I want you to go get him and bring him back so we can kill him. And as these henchmen step into the community of these prophets that are prophesying and worshiping and all these things, it says that these, these guys that are there for one purpose, which is to kill David, all of a sudden they're just stopped in their tracks and they just start prophesying. Like they start worshiping and prophesying and preaching truth, uh, which is kind of insane, right? I mean, like, how do you understand? How do you explain what's happening? These guys are not here going, hey, let's go to worship service. This looks like fun. They're it, it, literally God intervenes, turns them in the middle of that and causes them to begin to proclaim truth. So they're coming to bring down the Lord's anointed, but all of a sudden they stop and they just start preaching truth. That's, that's, a, that's an interesting act of the Lord, isn't it? It's an interesting thing to happen. So Saul gets really frustrated now, right? Because he's already sent his guys to go get him. He's like, dude, you can't rescue it. You can't even pull this guy out of a bunch of preachers and bring him home. And you're my soldiers? Like, I guess if you have to do something, if you want something done, you got to do it done right. You got to do it yourself. So Saul gets up and he goes, he's like, I'm just going to go get it myself. And so he wanders into this prophesying community. Um, what is it that, that you see happens to Saul? He does the exact same thing. Um, pretty insane passage. It says, and when it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. Then Saul sent messengers a third time and they also prophesied. So he himself went to Ramah and he asked the great, and came to the great well. And he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? They said, behold, they're at Naoth in Ramah. So he went there and the spirit of God also came upon him. And he went and prophesied until he came to, to Naoth at Ramah. Then he too stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and he lay naked all that day and all that night. And thus they said, is Saul also among the prophets? Uh, see, as confused as we are, they were just as confused about what in the world is happening right now. This guy comes to kill and instead he starts preaching. And then yeah, after preaching for a little while, um, he just takes his clothes off, lays down naked and stays there for the rest of the day. Now, it may not mean like buck naked. It actually may mean like in his skivvies, but like, that's just a weird scene. Like no one wants to see someone preaching in the skivvies, right? Can I get an amen? Like you with me on that? But this is a weird deal, especially a guy who's rejected the Lord, who's hunting down someone, who's trying to kill him, who's going through this kind of crazy depression. He's constantly being haunted with evil spirits and, and hurling spears at people. And now all of a sudden he's like, I think I'm gonna stop and preach. And he starts preaching to all these guys. And so at the end of it, the last line there, they go, is Saul among the prophets? Like, is Samuel like Saul? Like, they're really confused about the whole thing just as we are. And what, what's happening in this scene? Like, what, what explanation can you have for what's happening? 
the only explanation is that God is so sovereign, he can turn anyone and make him do whatever he wants. And there's another, another story in the Bible where uh, Balaam is hired to actually put curses on God's people and he's called to come and bring curses and all of a sudden he sits there and he starts to try to do curses and all that will come out of his mouth is blessing. And, and so they literally paid him to give curses and he's like, I love these guys and they're great. And they're like, no, that's not what I paid you for, right? And it's just God can, nothing can stop the Lord. And so as you look through chapter 19, here's what we see is Jonathan intervenes to protect David at the first, right? And tries to do something. Then David's able to escape the, the, the spear that's thrown at him as you get a little bit further in the chapter. Then you get a little further and his, his wife, Michal, intervenes and helps him escape. You get to the end, who helps him escape? And there's no explanation except that the almighty God of the universe intervened and did something to, to save him. And so God has just kind of said, yes, you need all these other people to help you, but at the end of the day, your confidence has to be in the Lord. And God says, none of my plans can be thwarted. And so he steps in and delivers David yet again. Now it's almost comical what happens if you think about just the irony of the rescues. Saul's trying to kill him and it's his family. You know, it's his inability to hit someone with a spear. It's him actually preaching the truth when he's supposed to be bringing damage to God's, uh, God's guy. And so it's almost this comedy scene, I think, of what happens. But what's clear is that God intervened to protect and deliver David over and over and over by any means necessary. That God has back and wasn't gonna let anything happen. See, ultimately providing the way of escape is the Lord's work. And David can depend on human help only, to such, only so far. But at the end of the day, he's gotta really count on the Lord. And that's, where, that's what we see this happen, salvation's from the Lord. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, a commentator on this said, sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you're successfully past your trial, but that you're still on your feet in the middle of it. This is kind of where we find David, isn't it? Like none of these escapes brought him to total safety. It feels like every time he escaped, there was another trial that came his way, right? And if I'm David, I mean, how, if you're David, how would you feel? It's like, dude, I can't get away. I think that's why in Psalm 59, he wrote, these guys are like wild dogs that are constantly hunting me down and they're prowling and they're pursuing and they're charging and they're coming after me and they're right outside the walls and there's nowhere for me to hide. So he's like, that's what it feels like. It feels like every time I escape, I haven't really escaped. Every time I get away, I'm right back in the same position. Every time I, I just say, I'm just gonna leave. Okay, I'll leave everything behind. I'll just go out to this community of preachers and they show up there too. And so you feel the tension, I think, that David feels in, as is expressed in Psalm 59. So let's think about this, this Psalm that he wrote. Now, as you think through all this, do you understand why he said the things he said? Do you, does, does this give insight into Psalm 59 when you see that these two are written together and see how this works? Do you understand why he starts it off and says, deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. Save me from bloodthirsty men. Do you understand why he writes that? Because that's what was his experience was. That he was expressing, this is where the reality of my life and what's going on right now. And so he's just writing a prayer to the Lord saying, I just want to complain about the way my life's going right now. This stinks. And could you kind of step in and help out a little bit? I know you can. And so he's writing a song and a prayer about that experience. Let me ask you this. What if David would have just faked happiness and ignored his emotions? Like, was he really better off? Like if you've looked at this story and David's like, yeah, I think I'm just gonna stuff it down, man up, and I'm good. 
Like that's not gonna serve him well in this scenario, right? That's not gonna give him any kind of, like it would not have produced Psalm 59. But a lot of times that's what happens is that we go through one trial and we go to another trial and we go to another trial. And we never stop and go, dude, what's going on in here with all this stuff happening out, here, out in my life? And we don't process that. I think what, one of the things that the Bible teaches us to do and one of the reasons why David is so helpful is we see these experiences and we put them side by side with, his, with the description in the Psalms where he says, let me tell you what's happening under the surface. And, and let me tell you how to really walk through and process the stuff going on in your own life. So let me give you three principles for how to process life spiritually, which is what I think David does in the Psalm. So three principles for how you can help, how you can process life spiritually based on the life of David. One is he acknowledges the reality of his life. David, he acknowledges the reality of his life with unguarded authenticity, right? When he writes the Psalm, he's describing what happened in 1 Samuel 19. He says, this is how I feel right now. I feel like there's no way out. And I just want to complain a little bit. And so he pours his soul out. He pours his heart out. He describes exactly what's going on. And he just says, this is the reality of life. People are trying to kill me. And he also acknowledges, and I haven't done anything wrong. You know, have you ever suffered under injustice? So one of the things that happens for people that have been bullied, for people that have been abused, for people that have been under injustices, you tend to try to justify and explain away the stuff that's going on. And so a lot of times what you say is, I don't think I really did anything. Or that's what you say is, I must have done something. Like this must be partially on me. See, one of the things David does that's really strong and really important for us to see is in the midst of his injustice is he's one to step up and say, I didn't do anything wrong. These guys are trying to take me out and I have not earned any of it. And so he stands in the truth that, and I, I, did not, I did not deserve what's happening to me right now. That's an important thing for us to do. Some of us go through these experiences and because we don't do what David did, we don't stand on the truth and the reality of what's happening. Sometimes we get ourselves in a place of saying, well, maybe this is my fault. Maybe I should have, and we begin to help explain even those that are against us in an unhealthy way. But David doesn't do that. He acknowledges the reality of his life. Second thing he does, he expresses or names his emotions. He just says, this is the way it feels. And uh, any of you find that hard to do? It's interesting on our men's retreat, uh, as a group of guys, we were talking and one guy said something about, man, I, you know, I have a hard time with this. And another guy said, yeah, my wife tells me I have a hard time with this. And pretty soon everyone's like, yeah, I think we all have a hard time with this. And, and there's just, man, this can be a tough thing, not just for us guys, but there's some reality. It's sometimes hard for us just to express what we're feeling and to say what's going on. Sometimes it feels like weakness to say, Dude, I feel like I'm being hounded and hunted down and I, don't find, I, don't, I can't see any way of escape right now. Sometimes it's hard to say, dude, we are fighting to pay bills and we have no idea how to get out of this. Sometimes it's hard to say, I mean, we are chasing, we are chasing our debt and we keep running and we keep running, but every time I go to the mailbox, there's another bill there. Sometimes it's hard to say, uh, you know, and just, man, I get to interact with a lot of people. Sometimes it's hard to say, man, the doctor said this isn't gonna get better. Sometimes it's hard to acknowledge those things. Sometimes it's hard to say, man, this marriage isn't everything it ought to be. And I'm struggling. Those things can be hard. Sometimes it, man, students, sometimes it can be hard to say, man, when so-and-so said this online, it really stung. Sometimes it can be hard to say, and I'm afraid to go off to college and be by myself and leave home for the first time. All those things are real, right? And they cause things under the surface that make us think and feel all kinds of things. So one of the ways in which we can be healthy in life is we have to just name that. 
and say, man, here's what's going on and express it, name it in an honest way. The third thing that we need to do as we process is we need to depend on truth from God. We need to, to, to count on and depend on truth from God that's related to the reality we're facing. That ultimately that's what David does. Remember in uh, Psalm 59, two different times he goes and he asks for help and he complains a little bit and then he stops and says, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you for you are God on my fortress. My God is in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look at my enemies. So there's this kind of but God moment that happens that in the midst of all the stuff, say, here's the reality of my life. Here's how I feel in the midst of all this. But here's who my God is, is the progression that you see in the psalm. And you see that in the second half of the psalm as well. He comes back in, he complains a little more. He asks for help a little more. Then he says, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and to me a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. So he depends on the truth of who God is and truth from the Lord in the midst of his circumstances and his emotions and all that he feels. Friends, what would it look like for you to live with this kind of confidence? For you to have that kind of trust in the Lord? And I think it's important. And we can know peace and joy and love within the safety of God's protection and care, even when things are hard. That's what you see from, from David's life. This word steadfast love that David comes back to at the end, um, it's, it's an important word in the Old Testament. It's kind of the New Testament correlation that would be like grace. That we, as we think about grace and the way we talk about grace in the New Testament, steadfast love is that. It's, it's an Old Testament word that means that God's covenant love, his loyal love, his faithful love, his trustworthy love, his forever love, his unending love, his undefeatable love, his love that's never gonna quit on you. It's describing that kind of love. And that's where David comes back around. He says, look, I, don't, I, I know I, I can't even understand all the stuff going on out there in my world that doesn't seem fair, but here's the reality of what it is. I can't even understand the way I feel about all this going on here. But the one thing I know I can count on is the anchor of God's steadfast love that's never gonna leave me. And that I can depend on in any circumstance. That's where David ultimately goes. And I love that he kind of ends in verse 16. It's kind of, he, he actually shifts from praying to actually singing. And he's kind of this blues riff that takes off there. And he just says like, I will sing. And it's like, I will sing loud, meaning like I will shout. And he gets to this point where he's like, I will raise a song to you, O Lord. And, and it's, it's kind of this picture of in the, in the cold, lonely circumstances of his life, he's gonna kind of pull up to, and warm himself by the fire of God's love. And he's gonna pull out the guitar and like, I'm just gonna sing about this a little bit. And it's kind of like, he's just gonna sing some blues right? Let me just tell you about my problems. Let me complain a little bit. Let me ask you for help. And then let me tell you what's true. And I'm going to just raise a song to the Lord and count on that. Um, that's where we want to be, friends. Um, that's where we want to be. And the good thing about our stories of redemption, David, we get, to, we get a chance to look in and watch how David wrestles with his life and how he takes those things to the Lord. And that's a good thing. And we can learn much from David. Friends, people also get to watch us and see how we wrestle with life and how we take those to the Lord. And our, our kids watch how we wrestle with life and take those things to the Lord. Our friends and our coworkers watch how we wrestle with life and take those things to the Lord. And I love that one of the aspects of what David says is, and to the ends of the earth, may God's name, may, may they, everyone know that the God of Jacob reigns. And as we walk through the stuff of our lives, and let's just, let's, let's follow David's example. Let's 
be honest about the reality. Let's be, uh, let's name and acknowledge the stuff going on. And then let's run to the truth of the Lord and let's count on it uh, because he's trustworthy. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we just ask that you would be at work in the messiness and craziness of our lives. Father, in it all, uh, would you convince us that you are more trustworthy than anything else? Uh, Father, may we learn from David's example how it is we can, we can count on you. Father, in um, the good times and the bad times and everything in between. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.